You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Uh, this morning, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Ant Pastor here at Midtown Tunage. If you're new, very glad that you are here worshiping with us today. Very glad to, that you chose to, to worship with us. If, you're, if you are new, uh, we are in the middle of a, well, kind of reaching the end now, actually, of our study on 1 Corinthians. We've been working through this since August. We took a little break over the holidays, uh, but now we're back in full swing. We've been kind of working through it verse by verse, line by line, going through the Bible. One of the good things about that, one of the good things that's also challenging, is when you go through the Bible line by line, it can cause you to come up to passages that, you, that might be difficult to work through. It can cause you to go through passages that maybe in your own Bible study time, if you, if you do that, you're not quite sure how to deal with, so you kind of keep moving. Well, today, we're in one of those passages. A passage that will bring up a, at least one controversial topic, maybe two. A passage that I think oftentimes gets skipped over. Here at Midtown Tunash, we say we are a Jesus-centered family on mission. Part of being Jesus-centered means that we are people of the book. We are people of the Bible. We submit ourselves to it. We conform our lives to fit the Scripture. We don't conform the Scripture to fit our lives. Amen? Amen? The Bible is the authority over us. We don't skip aside passages that are maybe difficult to deal with, difficult to work through. So we're going to attempt to do that together today. To get us into our topic for today, I want to ask a, a couple questions at least. What is the difference? Rhetorical questions. Don't answer out loud. You might get in trouble. What's the difference between men and women? If someone says to you, be a man, how do you interpret that? If someone says to you, be a woman, how do you interpret that? What, what are they saying to you? If you say that to someone else, what are you communicating to them? Are the differences in behaviors between men and women just things that we've learned from, from cultural stereotypes? Are they actually hardwired into us as men and women? How should men and women view and treat each other? Are there certain roles in our society, in our churches, that are better suited for men or better suited for women? What does God who created male and female have to say about all of this? Now, some would respond by saying, I disagree with the question. Some would say, your question is, is presupposing that God actually created male and female, and I don't agree with that. I think gender is more fluid, it's more neutral, it's whatever you want it to be, whatever you decided to be for yourself. You got to live your truth. You, you, you got to do what you feel is most true and right in your heart, and above all else, you got to be true to yourself. Some say we just make up. Gender. It's a, it's a social construct, and we need to stop acting like there are actually innate differences in the wirings of men and women. Regardless of whether or not you agree with that statement, one thing that is true in societies across the world is that men have had a horrible tendency and pattern of using our physical strength to hurt and harm and abuse women. The World Health Organization says that one-fifth of the world's females are physically and or sexually abused by men at some point 
in their life. The U.S. General says that domestic violence by males against females accounts for more adult female emergency room visits than traffic accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. The U.S. Department of Justice says that 30% of all women who are murdered are killed by husbands, ex-husbands, or boyfriends. If we don't approach gender, specifically with this one, masculinity, in a godly way, it generally goes bad not as much for men as it does for women. Because of this, some have very low views of men. Some say that men are bad and everything that's wrong with the world, so the men need to get out of the way so that the women can run things and lead things. Some say that that masculinity in and of itself is a problem. Some have a very low view of women. Some basically, in incredibly shameful ways, believe that women are less capable than men. Some believe that women are overly emotional or irrational and can't be trusted to make objective decisions because of emotions. As we'll see in the passage today, the Bible teaches that God has made us male and female, that both genders need each other. It teaches that, that men and women should actually rely on each other and support each other. That's what the Bible teaches. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to start it at verse 2. We're going to, Paul is going to address the topics of gender roles and authority, which he calls headship. Gender roles and authority. He's going to deal with this in the, in the Christian text. Now, this, I mean, in the Corinthian church, I should say. Now, this makes, there's a few reasons that this is going to be difficult for us and that this is a very difficult passage. Number one, this is a highly controversial topic. Probably two highly controversial topics kind of pushed together into one. Also, we're picking up on this in the middle of a back-and-forth Q&A between Paul and the Corinthian church. So at some point before this letter was written, there were questions that were sent to Paul, potentially already some back-and-forth from Paul and the Corinthians that are already going on. So it's kind of like if you're on Twitter, you ever jump into a Twitter disagreement in the middle? And you get context when you go to, when you go to the beginning of the thread. We don't have the beginning of the thread. So we're kind of picking up, picking up on this in the middle so we don't know everything that's already been said. And the third thing I think that makes it difficult for us is we have to be able to distinguish well between practices and principles. Cultural practices and principles. There there, there are ways that principles will be lived out differently in different cultures. Now, we always obey the principle, but Paul's going to say some things in here that are specifically to that culture, some practices for them that we won't necessarily do. For example, not in this passage, but in, in another passage in the Bible, Paul says, Uh, Greet the brothers with a holy kiss, right? That's a practice that he says. Now, none of you, I don't believe, were kissed by the host team when you walked in today. I don't think that's that's going down in our greeter training. That was a cultural thing. At that time, that would have been very acceptable. It's a a sign of we we welcome you. We accept you. We're glad that you're here. If one of you kissed me, one of you men kissed me when we're walking in, we got a problem. All right, we got issues. I'm going to try to stay Christian and not lose my job when that happens. If that were to happen, but the principle is the same. Greet each other, love each other, welcome each other, practice hospitality. The principle is what we want to pull. The principles is what we want to pull out of this text and not the cultural practices that Paul calls them to. This is going to be a tough one. I'm going to pray again. I already prayed once. I'm going to pray again just because I know what's coming in this passage. Uh, feel free to pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Humble us, Lord, under your word. 
Help us to see you as the authority. Help us to trust you. Trust that your word is good because you are good. Trust that you don't withhold the good things in life from your people. Help us to see the beauty in your design for headship, for gender, and use it to transform us and make us more like you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, I'm just going to read it through, and then we'll work right through what I believe to be the three main principles in this passage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You can probably sense when we're reading that that there's some context that is missing. There's been some conversation that's already been going forth, going on with Paul and the Corinthian church. Let's look at what I consider to be main point number one that Paul gets to in this passage, and that is headship is godly and good. Headship is godly and good. If you're a note taker, go ahead and write that one down. Headship is godly and good. Read verses two and three again. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Notice how he ends verse 3. The head of Christ is God. To understand what Paul is saying about headship, we need to have, take a look at the Trinity. For eternity past and eternity, and eternity future, God exists as three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Paul is making the point that God the Son actually submits to God the Father and sees him as his head. He's making the point that within this, this, this loving relationship of the Trinity, we're talking about Jesus himself, the one who everything was made for, everything was made by, and everything was made through. He submits to God the Father. Check out what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. We see that Jesus speaks what the Father commands him to speak. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Same point. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. This is Paul talking about Jesus' submission to the Father. 
And being in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross, saying that Jesus, God the Son, obeys God the Father. And I want to make this point, because I believe we often understand headship and authority to be a bad thing. I think we, we, we often believe that if I am under authority of someone, that I'm not equal to them. I think we often believe that, that if God says that I'm supposed to submit to this person or be, or be under the, the, the authority of this person, then they must be greater than I. But we know that that's not true. Sometimes we, we, we come to the understanding that, that we are what we produce in our society today, we, or we are our role. So if my role is under your role from an authority standpoint, then I must be lesser than you are, or, or maybe I'm not as capable as you are. But this is Jesus, the one who everything was made by, everything was made for, and the one who everything in the universe was made through, the one that holds the entire universe together saying, I will submit to my Father. Submission does not, does not tell us what we are worth. Uh, our, our role from an authority hierarchy standpoint does not tell us how qualified or competent or capable, capable we are. It does not tell us how valuable or how needed or how worthy of honor we are. Paul says, God the Son submits to the headship of God the Father. There's no one more capable, more competent, more qualified than Jesus. There's no one more worthy of worship than Jesus. In, in the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, the one who's the star is Jesus. He's the one wearing a crown. He's the one sitting on the throne. He's the one ruling over the nations, and he submitted to his Father. If you are, if you are a Christian, submission saved you. Jesus' submission to his Father accomplished the salvation of a lost and dying world. Submission saved you, but you live in a world that says that your role determines your worth and your value. So if your mind isn't renewed by the Bible, you believe that God saying that someone is your head is an offense to you. If you listen to the world, you believe that saying that you are under the, the authority or headship of someone else, that that's an attack on your dignity and you might be offended by the Bible, if your mind is not renewed by the word of God. The Bible teaches that God created men and women in the image of God to display who he is in his creation. He's also determined that the head of every wife will be her husband. Paul doesn't get into it in this passage, but in Ephesians, he talks about how also the husband's role is to love and care for his bride as Christ loves and cares for the church. Excuse me. He is the sacrifice for her as Christ sacrificed for the church. So the wife is to follow the husband's headship, and the husband is to self-sacrificially love her as Christ loved the church. The reality of the Trinity reminds us that God is not saying that women are less capable, less intelligent, less rational, less competent, less worthy of dignity, less valuable, less needed, or less gifted than men are. Authority, headship, and submission are not curse words. They're not bad. Bad authority is bad. Bad authority is, is one of the greatest causes of problems in our world today. So we need a lot of accountability for leaders. We need a lot of checks and balances for those who are in positions of authority because people are sinful. And, by, and, and sinful people put in authority cause bad things to happen. So we need checks and balances to be there. And let me say this, and I don't think there's anyone in this room that this that does not believe this, but I feel like I need to say it anyway. If you are a man 
and hearing me talk about authority and headship made you think, if I am married, then I get my preferences over my wife. You have no idea what manhood is. You have absolutely no clue what manhood is. We did a series called Theology of Sex. I think it was two years ago. I think it was 2007, I would, 17, excuse me. I would love for you to go back and, and, and go through. I don't have time to go into it. We define what we say manhood is, what we would say femininity is. I don't have time to get into all that today. would love for you to go back through that. But this, this, this authority is never to allow someone to be put in a more comfortable situation than someone else. Or it's never to allow for someone to have their preferences flesh out more than those who they're in authority over. That was never what it was supposed to be. That's what it's often become. That's what it often is, but it's not what it is intended to be by God. We see that because that's not what Jesus did. We see that he, he used his authority to, to put him in a position to be able to sacrifice for others. Paul is establishing God the Father is the head of Jesus. Jesus is the head of everyone. The husband is the head of his wife. Everyone who ha- and everyone who has authority is to use it to protect, love, and serve just like Jesus did. Knowing that every bit of authority that God has given to you, for every bit of it, you will stand before the one who has a higher authority than you, who has used his authority perfectly and given account for how you use the authority that he has given you. That is for all of us who he has put in positions of authority. Let's continue on in verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So he just said that the head of every man is Christ. So, what he's, so at this time, in this culture, we've already talked about before many times in this series how there were many temples for, for pagan and idol gods to be worshipped. Oftentimes, uh, the men there would throw the togas over their head when they're worshipping these false gods. It was a, it was a sign of piety. Right? It would have been very much easily seen as worship of these false gods. So what Paul is saying is if you pray or prophesy in the church with your head covered, it's going to dishonor Christ who is your head because you worship him now and not these other false gods. Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her, her head, then she should cut her hair short. I can't even read this passage. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. In their culture, women who cut their hair short, especially, I'll I'll start here, women who cut their hair short oftentimes were either a prostitute or they were doing it as a sign of defiance against whoever was in authority over them. Either cut their hair short or don't wear hair covering or head covering was a sign of rebelling against headship. And for a wife to do that will be, will be in some ways to reject her femininity and to reject the fact that she is a wife under the headship of her husband. Or it was to say that I am romantically available. One commentator I was reading saying that for, for a wife to, to do that would, would be like a wife in, in our church to come up front. And whenever she's up front, for whatever reason, she takes her wedding ring off. Paul is saying this is not appropriate for leading in corporate worship. Main point number two we'll get into. Let's read verse seven through nine first, and I'll I'll read our our next primary point. For a man ought to not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman 
from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Point number two, gender distinctions are godly and good. Gender distinctions are godly and good. Paul brings up the creation account here to communicate that men and women are different from each other. Paul is saying this is not something that a human made up. This is something that God made up. This is how he designed it in the beginning, that there are actual distinctions between the way he made men and the way he made women. Gender is not a social construct. A man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. God's made the two equal in worth and value and competency and ability to show off him as image bearers, and yet given different roles specifically inside of a marriage. After that, we see the problem that man was in. So after God created everything, he said everything was good. Then we see a problem. Something was not good. Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. There was only one thing that God said was not good in all that creation, and it was that man was not alone. He needed a helper. The Hebrew word there is azer. It's spelled E-Z-E-R, azer. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. And then verse 19, so God brings all the animals in front of Adam for Adam to to find a helper and name the animals. Then, Then verse 20 says, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. If God Almighty says something once, it's very important. If he says something twice, you should be paying very close attention and thinking through what is he trying to say. Because this is the second time now he said that Adam has not had a helper or found a helper that was fit for him. This is a big deal to God. And when, the thing about when someone is in need of a helper to the point that it's a big deal shows that there is something lacking that is there. That there you, you only really need a helper if you can't get the thing done, whatever you're doing on your own. That's the only time not having a helper is actually a big deal. The Hebrew word is there or is there. It means one who helps, but the person or the being in the Bible that it primarily refers to is God. It usually describes him. He's the ultimate helper. Of his, his ultimate helper specifically for his people. God makes women like himself able to step into a situation and provide what is needed for those around her. This gifting, this wiring that she has, it's, it's not a lesser gifting or wiring than what Adam has, equally needed. Also in the New Testament, there's a helper that Jesus talks about in John chapter 14, verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is referred to as a helper. I believe this term, for whatever reason, has been seen as less important or less dignified. When we see Old Testament and New Testament, God himself is referred to as a helper. So it's not a word of weakness in any way. And so one of the things that this teaches us, and if, if this term as a helper is not a form of, of weakness or, or does not communicate any, any amount of less capability, we see ultimately that in, the, in terms of a husband and a wife, headship is ordained and not earned. Headship is ordained and not earned. What do I mean by that? That God didn't say, oh, well, man is more capable, so man is going to be the leader here. That's not what he's saying at all. It's ordained. It is the way that, it ha- that he made it because of how he created everything. 
I know of Christian men who have felt like they can't pursue certain Christian women because they felt like they weren't as good of a leader as she was. They had this false understanding that if I'm going to be married and I know that how God sets up the roles in a marriage, I need to be a better leader than she is. Otherwise, I cannot lead her. That's backwards. Right? This, this headship, it is not earned. It is ordained. It, it is not a matter of who is the better leader. That's not what's happening here. I've, I've known of, of Christian women who felt like they've been pursued by a godly brother. They just felt like they were a better leader than him. It's like, I don't know if I can marry him because I feel like I'm a better leader than he is. Headship is not earned. It is ordained. It is not a matter of the man has to be the better leader. Now, there is some responsibility that he's going to have as the head. And I believe specifically when it comes to the way the relationship and the marriage and potentially the family goes, if there are problems when, when, when the two have to give an account, I believe that the man will bear more responsibility because he is put in a headship position. That does not mean he has to be a better leader than his wife. We'll continue on, verse 10 and 11. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Looked at a lot of commentaries. Nobody has any idea what that verse means. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Nevertheless, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Men and women need each other. That's my third point. Point number three, men and women need each other. Men and women need each other. At this point, this would have been radically countercultural for Paul to say. For him to say, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Man, the patriarchy in that society at that time when, when women weren't even able to testify in court and defend themselves for Paul to, to put women in the same place as men from a dependent standpoint would have been countercultural. Probably would have made some people mad. Probably would have made some people angry. When Paul is saying woman is not independent of man, most would probably be like, right, of course. And he says, nor man of woman. He's intentionally challenging them and correcting them on their views of gender at that time, we're going to jump down to verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. It's believed that when he says nature, he's actually referring to your natural sense of what is right and what is wrong. And again, they're coming from a cultural context where they are saying, or they're believing a couple things. A, if a woman cuts her hair short or is not having her hair covered, then she's either saying she's romantically available or she's rebelling against whoever is head over her at that time. And on top of that, I know many people believe Jesus had this long, flowy hair. It was commonly understood at that time, it was perceived at that time that women had long hair and men had shorter hair. That was a common perception. So it was perceived that if a, if a man was letting his hair grow long, that he was actually trying to be feminine. They're not, they're not saying that, that it was just, it looked feminine. They were saying that he was actually trying to come across as feminine at that time. And the same thing for, for a woman. If a woman were to cut her hair short, it would be her trying to be masculine. I believe the, the primary point here, the primary principle that we can draw from this is that Paul is saying 
that even in the people of God, in the gathering of the people of God, embrace, if you're a man, that God made you a man. If you're a woman, embrace that God made you a woman and not try to intentionally look like what you were not made to be. The cultural equivalent is for men to, how does our culture perceive a, a man to, to, to dress? And I'm not just talking about stereotypes. I'm talking about what if I did this, then I am intentionally looking like a woman. Paul is pushing back against this. He's saying this isn't correct. That is the, the principle. But again, as we read already, he says, nevertheless, in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Verse 12, for a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Woman was made, so he uses the argument, woman was made from man, but now man is born from woman. So again, he's talking about this in, a, in terms of equality. And he's pointing out that we need each other. That there's a, a need for each other. That if we're all going to truly thrive and prosper as God has designed us to, we have to understand our interdependency with men and women, given the distinctions that God has given us. We need men and women using our God-given gifts, talents, the energy that he has given us for the edifying of all. In our life groups, we have a lot of time when men are together discussing life, discussing the Lord. We have a lot of times when women get together to discuss the Lord, discuss our lives, what God is doing. I believe that's very helpful in many ways. I also think there's some dangers in that that we ought to be careful about. Fellas in the room, do those times ever turn into times of bashing and making fun of women? Sisters in the room, do those times ever turn into times of, of bashing and making fun of men? Husbands in the room, if you're with men in our church and a guy brings up something that his significant other has done, is doing, that frustrates him, you need to be very careful about the next words that come out of your mouth if you have experienced the same thing. I'm going to say that again. Men in the room who are either dating or married, if you're in a conversation where there are only men, and one man starts talking about something that his significant other is doing, is saying, that is frustrating to him, and he does not understand. You need to be very careful about the next words that come out of your mouth if you have experienced the same thing. Because it is very easy. It is very easy for a conversation that started as just someone being honest about what's going on in their life to turning into a superiority complex within the group that looks down on the other gender as the other gender is not there to represent themselves. It is very easy to start with very good intentions and turn into a very dishonoring time to our brothers or sisters who are not in the room, or specifically to the husbands, to the women who are not in the room, to our women in the room. If you're with women in our church and someone brings up something that a man has done that is wrong, that is frustrating, that is aggravating, that you can't understand, and you have experienced the same thing, you should be very careful how you respond. I'm not saying you can't respond. I'm saying you should be careful. I'm saying you should choose your words carefully because it's very easily for those times to turn into a very dishonoring time to our brothers. Very easy. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. 
Pray that this would transform us by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. To honor someone is to have high respect and great esteem for them. To our sisters in the room, I would like to say, be careful when you notice yourself saying words like, yeah, you know women, yeah, you know men are like that. They always blank. Be careful because, because what comes next is often actually very dishonoring to our brothers. I've heard women, not necessarily in our church, belittling men, demeaning, demeaning men, being disgusted with men in shameful ways, speaking about men as if all men are dogs and incapable of truly loving a woman and taking care of a family. To our men in the room, when you're around other men, be very careful when you fix your mouth to say words like, man, women be blank. Or, man, that's a woman for you. You know, you know women be. Be careful because often what comes next is very dishonoring. Rather than showing honor to our sisters. I've heard men, not in this church specifically, belittle women in disgusting and shameful ways. I've heard men dismiss women's very valid thoughts as just overly emotional or irrational or weak or foolish. As if men don't get overly emotional and irrational. I've seen grown men over a game, a football game, destroy things and accuse women as being overly emotional. <laughs> On a more serious note, oftentimes being a woman means having your thoughts, beliefs, and ideas dismissed and your voice unheard because men say you're being dramatic or you're exaggerating, or it's not really as bad as you're making it out to be. To, the, to our brothers in the room, many of us will never know the stress, worry, that many women have of being abused or taken advantage of. I've talked to, we had different sisters communicate this as we were going through teaching team. How oftentimes, actually there was, there was this, this conference that was going on, there are men and women present. And the question was, what would you think about before you went and ran outside one night just to exercise? And the men were saying things to the effect of my playlist. I would think about making sure I had something maybe that, that was the light enough color so it would be seen if a car was coming by. And the women were like, there's no way I'm doing that. There's no way I'm doing that. There's no way I'm putting myself at risk of being taken advantage of or abused in those ways. We aren't a big church, but just by the number of women in our church, I know that we have women who have been abused in a variety of ways. And then we're told, likely by men, that it wasn't that big of a deal. That it wasn't that bad. That, no, he, he didn't do that. You're exaggerating. May our mighty God... Discipline us swiftly as men if we ever dismiss the voices of women like that in this church. May he discipline us swiftly, severely even, if need be. May that never be so of us. May we honor the sisters that God has given us 
and to know the privilege that it is to be in fellowship with our sisters. Here's a thought that I had as I was preparing this sermon. Actually, this one came to me last night. What if men and women in our church, in your life group, got into a friendly competition, just based off Romans 12, 10, got into a friendly competition? What if the brothers decided we're going to outdo the sisters in showing honor to them? And if the sisters was like, nah, bro, ain't going down like that. We're going to outdo y'all in showing honor to you all. What if we relentlessly affirmed and encouraged and honored every bit of the image of God that we see in each other and call each other up to be the men and women that God has made us to be? What if we were determined to not let the other honor us more than we honor them? You know who we'd actually look like if we did that? We look a lot like Jesus. Check out what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm looking at verse 5 and 6. This comes after him talking about us being sons of disobedience. So just to give you the context of this verse, he just told us that we were sons of disobedience, that we were sons of wrath, that we were in a position and a status level of shame, deserving the condemnation and wrath of God. Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, talking about what Jesus has done, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, this is one I don't think we commonly understand. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That when we place faith in Christ, one of the terms in the Bible that describes us is that we are in Christ. So the way that the Father sees us is that he sees us doing the same things that Christ has done, living the life that Christ has lived, and thus he honors us the way that he honors Christ. So he takes us from this status and this position of shame and moves us to a status and a position of honors. We are seated with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places. One of the mysterious things about the gospel, that he places us in a status of honor and esteem, Because when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, and God bestows honor on us. So when you take the time to honor your sisters, when you take the time to honor your brothers, you give them a glimpse of the way that God actually sees them. So when you take the time to intentionally honor and lift up and highly esteem your brothers and sisters in the faith, you give them a picture of how God sees them. Because for many of us, we still see ourselves in that position of shame. We see the things that we've done. We have these self-condemning thoughts that haunt us. And we see ourselves not in a position of honor before God or or with God, but we see ourselves in these positions of shame because of the condemnation, because of what we deserve. But when we honor one another, we actually are living out our identity as the image bearers of God and bestow honor on those that God bestows honor to and remind them that every lie that the enemy has told them in their self-condemning thoughts is exactly that, a lie. And that they are seated in the heavenly places with and in Christ himself. What if you looked around our church and noticed that we aren't honoring the sisters enough, that we aren't honoring the brothers enough? And so you decided that you weren't going to wait on anybody else to get it started. That you were just going to be led by the Holy Spirit enough in Christ to start it yourself. To say, I'm going to be a part of the culture of this church being one of honor, where we honor each other, where men honor women, where women honor women, where men honor men, and women honor men. Don't you think we prosper and flourish so much more as a church? Don't you think that we just love Christ a little bit more, that we'd be more encouraged to live as the men and women that God has called us to? Don't don't you believe that those of us who don't feel loved will just feel a little bit more cared about? 
Don't you think that those of us who feel worthless and unlovable will be emboldened to believe the truth that God really does care about us and cherish us? Don't you think that those who have been rejected by seemingly everyone would find a body and a family of believers where they are truly accepted and honored? Don't you believe we'd be more committed to God's church, to his people, to his mission that he has called us to? Don't you believe that the men in our church will be encouraged to step up and sacrifice and serve and take initiative to cultivate good in our church and in our community as God has created us to do? Don't you think that the sisters in our church will be encouraged to be every bit of the Azair that God has created our sisters to be? Let's be a family that recognizes our distinctions, that recognizes that they are from God, and then goes the extra step to honor one another in light of those distinctions and not tear each other down. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for you, that you honor us, that you had every right not to honor us. You had every right not to highly esteem us. We turned against you. We rebelled against you. We continued to run away from you. And you sent your son, you sent your son, your son to take the place of shame on the cross for us so that you can grant us the position of honor in your kingdom. We thank you for that. Father, grow our trust in you, in your design, in your design of of headship, specifically in marriage. Father, there's anyone in the room who is struggling with understanding themselves to be who you created them to be, man or woman. Would you comfort them? Would you grow their faith? Would you grow their, their trust in you that they would believe what you say is true about them? Father, would you grow us as those who desire to honor each other, who desire to outdo one another in honoring each other, that we wouldn't wait for someone else to do it, that we would intentionally take steps to honor each other, that our men would would honor our sisters, that our, our women would honor our brothers, God. Would you help us to see how much we need each other? Would you help us to not see these distinctions as, as a bad thing or, or see the roles in, in marriage of, of the husband being the head and of the wife being in submission to him? Would you help us to, to not see that as something that robs women of dignity? Continue to grow us. We need you, Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.